Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Verley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. Today, we are back in the podcast studio and we've got a special guest for you guys coming to us all the way from Yale, right down the street, only about 20 minutes here from our home office, is Luisa Escobar Hoyos, PhD, Assistant Professor of Therapeutic Radiology at Yale University, Yale Medical. Louisa, thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple Podcast. First of all, did I say that correctly? You said it perfectly, Dino. Thank you so much for today's invitation. Thank you to you and to the listeners for you know taking the time to hear our story. Um, as you said, yes, I am a cancer scientist. More particularly, I am focused on winning the battle against pancreatic cancer. I started at Yale a year ago, but I've been studying cancer pretty much my whole life. I was born and raised in Colombia, South America, but my mom was a cancer scientist also down there. And she really inspired me to become what I am today, uh, a pancreatic cancer scientist, uh, but also through my research, leading the and training the next generation of cancer scientists for the future women, men, and everyone who's interested in really figuring out the puzzle behind pancreatic cancer. I started at Yale um, a year ago, as I mentioned, but I've been here in the United States for the last 10 years. I trained first in my PhD at Stony Brook University uh, in the Department of Pathology under the mentorship of Ken Troyer. From there, I moved into New York City to uh, conduct my postdoctoral training under the mentorship of Stephen Leach and Omar Abdel Wahab. And uh, after being there in for five years, I now started my, my own research lab. And I am really excited to be today here to tell you what we're working on. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So I, I've, got a, I've got a quick question for you. And I want to get to this. I just wrote this down. You mentioned your mom is a cancer scientist in Colombia. So you, we were talking a little bit before we hit record. So full disclosure here, you, you're a new mom. You just had a baby a couple months ago. Congratulations. Actually six, seven months ago. Seven sorry. months ago, mm -hmm. seven months. Okay. Mm -hmm. So having a mom as a scientist, being a scientist, achieving that goal, and now being a mom, what does that all mean to you? I just want to spend a minute or two just talking about that because that's pretty cool. You know, when I was, as I was just mentioning, all the impact that my mom had in my life, I, before becoming a mom, I was very appreciative of everything that she had done for me, of, you know, doing with my dad everything possible to give me and my sisters the best education, uh, you know, we didn't, we were not poor, but we were also not rich just, just to have and to live a, a, a modest life. Um, but now that I am a mom, you start realizing how much goes into being a mom and being a parent. And you start just understanding the love that your parents have for you and understanding all the sacrifice that they had to put to raise us. Um, I cannot thank her, Mark, um, because it's because of, of her and my dad and they, their example that now I know how to potentially be a better mom. I want to give my, my son the best education that I can, letting him know that he can be whatever he wants if he dreams big and that he will have the support from me and from my husband. Um, and I can not wait to continue to learn from my parents, from my in-laws as well, to how to how to grow and to become a better parent as we learn. It's just it's just such a journey. Um, I feel like someone once they told me, being being a mom is gonna be the hardest job you'll always love. And now seeing it and living it, I cannot agree more. Um, so it's giving me more energy and it's giving me uh, really now my time is more limited 
And now I'm trying to make the most out of the time that I have to dedicate to pancreatic cancer research and to my team and to my trainees, but also making sure that I am there for my, for my baby. So awesome. Thank you for sharing that with our audience. So question number one, with your background, I know you, thank you for sharing that. You were at Stony Brook, you got your PhD, did your postdoc at MSK. And then you land at Yale in the midst of a, a, a global pandemic, which we'll talk about. But I want to back up before that. I know you've got um, therapeutic radiology is your specialty, but how did you get into pancreatic cancer? And, and I guess the question would be, why pancreatic cancer? And where along that journey, um, you know, uh, doing some research, you were a Fulbright scholar. Uh, you didn't mention that, so I wanted to make sure we we, we give you credit there because that's an, an amazing accomplishment. Was pancreatic cancer something that was on the radar screen early on, like when you were back in Columbia, or was it something that, you know, when you get to Stony Brook or MSK that you realize, hey, like this is where I want to do, or was it some sort of experience that you had? Sure. Thank you. Um, you know, when I was back home, I really just wanted to understand how can we better treat cancer in general, because we could have two clinically identical patients, meaning that they are the same gender, the same age, they present to the clinic with the same disease. And unfortunately, um, when we give them the same therapy, we know that one patient will respond and the other one won't. And at the molecular level, there had to be something that we were not seeing that a pathologist cannot see under the scope or that an oncologist cannot see just by sequencing the tumor. Um, and so I was intrigued by this. And this is when, uh, with, the, with the support from the Fulbright Commission and the Fulbright funding from the Department of State here in the U.S., I, I, came, to the, I came to start my Ph.D. program at Stony Brook under the mentorship of a lead pathologist, uh, Dr. Ken Troyer. And we, I said, you know, I really want to understand this differences in response to, to treatment. And at that time, we just used cervical cancer as a model system. So I was studying cervical cancer mainly when I was a graduate student. Um, but, you know, part of the training that I had with my mentor is I would love to come to his office and we would sit down under the scope and look at different tumors that he was diagnosing as part of his daytime job being a pathologist. And uh, I was so used to looking at cervical cancer and, and just to describe it a little bit on how it looks under the scope, how these cells kind of arrange in the mass of the tumor. In cervical cancer, you can imagine almost that 95, 90% of the mass of a tumor, it's composed mainly by the cancer cells. So this is a mass that is full of cancer cells and I was just shocked the first day that I saw a pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, so the most common form of pancreatic cancer under the scope. It turns out that when you see a mass or a tumor of pancreatic cancer, only five to 10% of that mass are cancer cells. The rest is collagen, fibroblasts, immune cells, and I could just not wrap my head around how this tumor is so lethal when you just have so little or so few number of cells that are malignant. And I was just, you know, shocked about it. And I can, I, you know, this was probably a year before finish up, finishing up my, my, my PhD studies. And I just thought I have to do something. I, it's too intriguing to me at the morphological level at their clinical level, why these patients are not responding to therapy, why we're lagging so much in the survival of this of this disease, that I just wanted to devote my full uh, interest and my full rest of my career to understand better this tumor. And that's how I got to MSK. So I basically started looking around the country and interviewing in different places where I could train pancreatic cancer research. And so I met my mentor at an um, at a conference, and I gave and I saw him give a talk, and it was almost like a scientific love at first sight, where I said I really like what he's doing, and I could see his you know his personality. I could see myself training under his mentorship, 
And that's how I came to MSK because that's where he was. He was uh, the first director of the Pancreatic Cancer Center at MSK. And we continue to stay in touch. And I continue to stay in touch with both of my mentors and, and my PhD mentor and my postdoctoral mentor uh, because all of us were just puzzled about this disease. Actually, one fun fact, after I decided to switch to pancreatic cancer research, my PhD mentor who for his whole career had studied cervical cancer, he said, you know what? I'm also going to do the switch. <laughs> I'm also going to start doing and studying pancreatic cancer. And if you don't mind, while you're at MSK, can you help me co-direct my team here at Stony Brook? Um, just so, you know, I could bring everything that I was learning uh, at MSK kind of funneling through uh, to Stony Brook so we could build a, a, a larger coalition of labs trying to understand this disease. So I'm glad that my decision brought another translational cancer scientist, uh, pathologist, and, and, you know, um, physician scientists to this area. You're inspiring other people. I love that. We love hearing that. And, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. I know before we hit record, I, I shared a little bit of why I do what I do, but to hear clinicians, researchers, scientists, oncologists, surgeons on why they get into this space. And, but it, it, to hear you say that just gets me excited because now, you know, we're sharing the reasons why, and, and maybe there's someone listening that didn't know that, right? And, and that gets them excited and gets them inspired to do something about the disease. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for all that you're doing. You'll, you'll hear me say that many times today here on this podcast. So we'll fast forward. You, you landed MSK. Now you're, you're in full in the trenches of pancreatic cancer. And you're rocking, you're rolling, and then you get to Yale. And you get to Yale right before this global pandemic that shuts everything down. So what is that like? And, and for our audience, let's give them the exact timeline, because I know you shared a little bit of this sure. before we hit record with me, um, but I'd love to share that story with our audience. Yes. So I actually started my postdoctoral training at MSK at the beginning of 2016. And for me, it was a quick learning curve. You know, as I mentioned before, I was studying another cancer type. And so I had to learn uh, a lot of the disease very quickly. And gladly, you know, the project that we had set out to, to do, it started picking up really quickly. We started getting really interesting results. And I was gladly supported and funded early on in my career by the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And later in the postdoc, I was also funded by two smaller foundations, the Hirschberg Foundation and also the National Pancreas Foundation. Uh, and so, you know, I, when it came the time and when, it, and when it felt the moment like, okay, I'm ready, I, I feel like I now can start launching my own lab. I started interviewing I am in 2019 and I interviewed for almost a year and I was glad that, you know, many institutions were interested in my, in my, in my work. They, I was able to do a few interviews, but when I came to Yale uh, for the first time, and even when I got on the phone to talk to my current uh, boss and friend, Peter Glazer, um, I felt that this was a good place to be as we potentially going to touch on later down the road, I study the RNA processes in cells and Yale is a Mecca of RNA biology. Uh, there is incredible uh, scientists here in that area. And I just really wanted to come to an institution that valued what I was doing from the biological standpoint, but that was also trying to build and applied research and bringing it to the patients. Uh, and so Yale is a, hot, it's a, it's a big pioneer in bringing the basic science to the clinic, to the patients and to starting uh, phase one, phase two clinical trials based on the research that it's done at the school. Um, so, you know, I took the offer from Yale and, and my husband and I, we moved from New York City. I will never forget taking that train uh, there was a truck coming with all our belongings and uh, we were coming on a train and we were just so excited to start this new life here in Connecticut after living for 
nine years in, in New York State. So I get here, my first day at the job is February 15th. You know, I am purchasing all the equipment that I need. I am trying to uh, put together the job postings for the people that I want to hire, you know, starting to network with all the individuals. I am excited about starting this job. And three weeks later, COVID hits and there is the lockdown. (laughs) And I had to close my lab full of boxes with new equipment that was waiting for us to get started. And unfortunately, you know, things happen. And of course, we, we ha- I had to start working from home and trying to come up with ways on how am I going to start a lab um, where potentially we're not going to be able to do any research at the bench or, or with mice um, for at least a year. How am I going to bring the funding? Funding was decreased. The funding opportunity was decreased for cancer research. Everything was going into COVID. And of course, for, for many reasons, um, hiring what there was also a hiring freeze. It was really hard with the travel restrictions. And so, you know, gladly I was able to hire the two postdocs that I started working with when building the lab. And we were just really close as a team. We also, I was working and I also hired one of my closest friends from my PhD program that also was a cancer scientist. And we started just working together, kind of like women power at the beginning and just trying to, you know, write as many grants as we could. Both of my postdocs, they wrote their fellowships and gladly three and four months after they joined, they got their own funding to get started into their journey in pancreatic cancer as well. They were also coming from another background. They were both immunologists start understanding infectious diseases, but they were intrigued again by pancreatic cancer. And that's how we, you know, we got them on the, on the wagon. Um, And so fast forward now, we are a team of 10 individuals. So I have three posts, I have a trio, trio, trio. So I have three postdocs, three graduate students, three undergraduate students. The three undergraduate students got their fellowships this summer to, to work in the lab and very talented. Everyone is very talented, multicultural. Um, and we're just all very energetic. And and my, my philosophy is that we need to work in team science. I learned this when I was at MSK and kind of trying to knock on doors and kind of trying to bring different people to help me understand this disease. I was also working on a topic that was not being understood, RNA processing in, in pancreatic cancer. So it gave me the opportunity to kind of start, you know, working with computational scientists, with oncologists, with surgical oncologists. Uh, with just basic scientists that understood RNA biology. And I wanted to set that same model here. And so we work on in teams pretty much. I, I have my lab set up where I pair, you know, postdoc with undergrad. So the undergrad can learn a lot and then the postdoc can have additional help. And, and so we are very excited. So I know that was a long answer, but I just really wanted to share with you how Maybe there is out there not only families uh, from patients hearing us, but also other scientists and maybe junior scientists or, or, or boys and girls that just want to become scientists and probably giving them a little bit of my journey and how I set things up. Uh, it's going to inspire them and maybe help them in their careers. I love it. Um, so I, I was, you know, as I mentioned, I've been taking notes here. So I've got a couple questions here. So you mentioned the knocking on doors and working with others. And I know this has come up in, in many podcasts with clinicians uh, from all walks, oncologists and the lab and, and surgeons. Um, do you think there is an issue in academia as a whole with a reluctance for people within centers so it's two part within centers to work together. That's part one. And then do you mm-hmm. think that holds true as well? Working with multiple centers. That's a very good question. So just to give you an overview, if we think about science in general and how, how has been the culture in science for many years, we used to award and we used to, um, 
kind of emphasize on the solo scientists, right? Mm -hmm. We have Nobel Prizes. We have the one award that it is for, like the career award. And so people were not incentivized to work in teams. And I think that for many years when we were just kind of, uh, because we were still limited by technology, we were still limited by communication, uh, that people maybe felt more comfortable working on their own and maybe solving smaller pieces of the puzzle that probably did not require to do you know, transdisciplinary collaborations. The problem now is that we're now facing larger scientific challenges. And although communication has improved, we have now internet, we can, you know, we have large ways to collect data, sequencing, clinical. Um, we have also better ways to, um, you know, to, to technology just in general. The problem now is how do we encourage people to collaborate? Because we were not taught this way. We were taught you just need to work on your own and just find the opportunity for yourself and rise, you know, solo. But what I think the the challenges with cancer research really tells you that there's no way that we're going to cure these diseases, and especially pancreatic cancer, if we don't work together, if we don't work as a team. There is, I, I can only do science that is going to benefit the clinic if I know what are the needs of the oncologist and the surgical oncologist. They can only advance medicine if they work together with us, basics, basic and translational scientists, that we can understand the molecular biology and potentially start coming up with better treatments that then later they can test them in the clinic with the patients. So it is something that we need to continue to build. Now, at the center level, I've worked in you know three cancer centers now, Stony Brook, MSK, Yale. And I could say that at all three institutions, gladly, they do support collaboration. Where I see it better established, I think here at Yale, I've seen it very well because there are also focus groups by disease. So for example, there is a long, a long spore, meaning a long group where, you know, basic scientists, translational scientists get together. We just recently built the first pancreatic cancer focus group at Yale. We actually, in the last five years, there was a big push from uh, the cancer center director to advance GI oncology. So gastrointestinal oncology. And so uh, a few of us were recruited. Um, so I was recruited last year, Mandar Masamdar and Nick Joshi uh, that came from MIT were also recruited three, four years ago. And uh, John Kinsman, who's our lead surgical oncologist also was recruited from MSK. And, and we now have this group set up and, and it's fun because we get on, you know, we get on calls and we also have oncologists and we also have pathologists and we now collaborate together and we think what is, nece what is necessary to do? What are we good at? How can we collaborate? So I can say that at the center, I feel very glad that I was able to find it here at the Yale Cancer Center. Now across centers, again, the problem is that we keep rewarding the cancer center, right? If, if it gets uh, you know NCI designation or if it gets NCI comprehensive cancer designation. Uh, and so the, the centers just want to protect what they have. I think what is nice now and where it's coming, where it's pushing us to make teams is the different funding agencies and more is coming from foundations and probably from the government. Yes, I've seen some of the government where they are encouraging teen science, where they are encouraging and even sometimes they have as a requirement that at least two institutions need to be collaborating because every institution has their own um, specialty. And so the, I think that this is exciting. We are learning on how to do this, um, but it's only through doing it that we'll, we will learn. But I am convinced and I am glad that other people are also convinced that this is the only way that we can push it forward. So hopefully the, it needs to come very much from the government to make sure that we consolidate 
large databases that are shared between centers, large clinical trials that are shared between centers, uh, because, I mean, I don't want to sound repetitive. It's the only way that we can do this. Thank you for sharing. Uh, because now my wheels are spinning and I'm making notes because, you know, one thing that I always say that we can do as an awareness group and, you know, as a, as a funder of cancer research is to incentivize, you know, people based on collaboration. And that's something that, you know, we've always tried to do here. And, and it's refreshing to hear that it's happening, you know, there at Yale, which is awesome to hear um, that, you know, in the center you know, there's, there's collaboration and there's, there's, you know, groups meeting from all disciplines, right. To talk about. And that's how we, you know, and I've, we've always said, and we've said this often on the podcast is that I don't think it's ever going to be one scientist. I, I, I think, you know, maybe the media or maybe like you said, that the, the system has been in place to incentivize people for their work and their work only. And until that gets changed from a macro perspective, then maybe that that's how you try to change, you know, I wouldn't say force collaboration or forcing people to share, but if the mechanisms are in place to reward people for sharing, then it's pretty simple, right? Um, you know, and, and you award people for working together and not keeping the information to themselves or even the centers for that matter, right? You take it to that higher level where you award systems for working with other systems to find yes. advances in medicine, right? And at the end of the day, we're all going to win and we're all going to share in the in the glory and the rewards of, of that. So thank you for sharing that. And it's awesome to hear that Yale's working together. I, I you know, I was fortunate to, uh, I think you mentioned the, the former cancer center director there, Charlie Fuchs, um, who I know has now moved on, but Charlie did a great job bringing a, a lot of people, yourself included. Um, I remember meeting with Charlie like the first week he was on the job. Not that this podcast is about Charlie, but we'll give him credit, uh, you know, for having that vision to kind of align. And I remember, you know, you mentioned the the RNA Mecca there at Yale. Charlie mentioned that in that first conversation. He's like, Yale's got these really amazing world specialists, you know, in this field. And, and, you know, we've got to work with them and bring people in to work with them. So it's awesome to see that, you know, that vision five years ago that he had, uh, has come to fruition. So it's awesome to see that. All right, let's shift gears here because we want to talk about all the great things you're doing in your lab. Uh, I know from a previous podcast that I listened to recently, there's some great information and I'd love to share that with our audience. So let's talk about what you guys are working on. I know there's some stuff in the lab that you guys are working on right now that you're having early success in, in mice, I believe, and, and hopefully taking that to uh, you know patients in, in a clinical setting. So with that, uh, let's get into it. Sure. Um, so- I just want to remind, you know, our audience that our genome um, encodes for many, many genes, uh, almost like 95,000 genes. And, and, and the way that they uh, get turned on every gene is after they get transcribed. And after they get transcribed, they produce a molecule that is called RNA. And we used to think that every gene will only transcribe for one RNA, but with the development of the sequencing technology, we now know that about every gene produces seven different transcripts. What does that mean? It means that now when we thought it was only 95,000 potential proteins or potential genes that were gonna be produced by a cell, we're now talking seven times that. So the complexity becomes bigger. Not only that, but we don't understand when a cell decides to, from that mRNA, produce a protein, right? And the proteins are the functional units within the cell. When a cell, you know, produces its mRNA, we're interested in understanding what makes a cell decide to produce one transcript more versus the other, and one protein more versus than the other. And are all these proteins that are produced by the same gene, are they all the same? 
but it doesn't make sense if they're all the same. Why would the cell go into so much trouble into having seven different transcripts? And so we started thinking that probably one of the reasons why potentially pancreatic cancer is so hard to treat, it's because potentially it's changing the proteins that it's producing by changing the uh, the transcripts that it's using. And this process of selecting a specific transcript and later producing the protein for that, that transcript is what we call RNA splicing. This is a poorly understood process in cancer cells in general. It was described 40, 50 years ago, but not much has been uh, put in place to understand how cancer cells hijack this pathway, this RNA splicing pathway to become resistant to therapies or even to become or transform from a normal cell to a cancer cell. Why we thought about RNA splicing for pancreatic cancer. A few years ago, actually, when I was going to start at MSK, there were different reports coming from the US and from uh, Australia that hinted that pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma that we were just mentioning, the most common form of pancreatic cancer that is so lethal, it actually could be subdivided into two molecular subtypes. It could be divided into, into the most lethal molecular subtype or the still lethal, but less lethal and a little bit more responsive to therapy. What caught my attention is that for the most lethal subtype of pancreatic cancer, the genes that were being kind of turned on in this molecular subtype were genes that were producing proteins that direct or that are involved in RNA splicing. And that's what hinted to me, could this be why these cells are so lethal? Could it be that they are using RNA splicing to change the, the proteins that they're producing. So if you give them therapy, then they say, oops, okay, I'm no longer going to produce this protein. I'm going to produce this other one that it is resistant and that it has a different function. And why this also sounded so, why it made sense is because we also knew that when we treat pancreatic cancer cells with the current chemotherapies, these tumors do not gain additional mutations. So in some way, they were resisting to the therapies, but at the DNA level, they were not getting additional mutations. So there has to be some other non-mutational mechanism to explain why they are so resistant. So all of these thoughts kind of came together. And that was the, you know, my first understanding of RNA splicing uh, was at MSK when I started studying this disease for the first time, this process, this biological process for the first time. And as I, we were saying previously, you know, kind of knocking on doors and see who could help me analyze this large data from tumors that normally is not typically analyzed, who knew a lot about this RNA splicing pro process. Um, and, and so after seeing from my research at MSK, how potent anti-RNA splicing therapies were to, uh, really uh, perturb pancreatic cancer cells and make them die. I thought that we had potentially just touched on a therapeutic vulnerability behind these tumors. Um, so I can tell you a little bit about, more about the two therapies that we, you know, we started using, but what excites me is that I think we now have a, a, at least an edge that we can continue to uh, Father, understand to cure this this disease. So I just want to jump in here. So I mean, this is really amazing. So there's, you know, and this is one thing that we've we've talked about, and I know I've mentioned just in in talks is we don't have a roadmap, right? So there's no roadmap to this disease, and I think that's, I guess, you're nodding your head. So we can agree that, you know, with this disease, the the one major problem, yes. and this is no knock on any clinician uh, on any level here at pancre within pancreatic cancer, and I and I think the, the challenge, and what do I mean by roadmap? Many cancers 
you get the cancer, they know what treatments work, they can tell you quality of life, longevity of life, they can, they can pinpoint that disease with the treatments. With pancreatic cancer, we don't have that, right? So there's no roadmap. And, and I think that's part of the frustration. And Luis, I know we, we talked about this before we hit record, you know, like I can go back to my personal experience with my dad, you know, here's the chemotherapy. We don't know what, how long it's going to, you know, what it's, we, we kind of have an idea what, what it's going to do to the patient. We don't know how your body's going to tolerate it. We don't know how the tumor's going to tolerate it. Right. And so I think that's part of the frustration, you know, with this disease that patients and advocates that we all share. And I know clinicians share this as well, is that we just don't know, we don't have that roadmap, but now you've identified, you know, part of the roadmap here potentially on how these lethal and non-lethal adenocarcinoma tumors react to particular treatments potentially. Yes, correct. You know, so just kind of um, a little bit on, on the patient management. As you were saying, you know, patients present to the clinic once the diagnosis is in place. Unfortunately, we only have two good, not good, but two chemotherapies that we can offer. Uh, so one being gemabraxane and the other one being modified for Ferinox. Um, the other thing that we do to the, to, the, to the tumor of the patients is we sequence those tumors. We want to know what mutations they have. Now, what is that going to tell us? Only about 5 to 10% of the patients will potentially have these mutations where there is a potential targeted therapy that we can give to them. Why? Because those mutations potentially, or they are more common in other cancer types. And so basically we would now, if the patient has that mutation, we will put them on a clinical trial where they will get the targeted therapy for that particular mutation, but we're almost treating them as another cancer type just because they carry that mutation. But as I said, it, it's almost finding like the needle in the haystack. We still do the sequencing because of course, if we can you know, help a few patients that have these actionable, these patients whose tumors have these actionable mutations, definitely we can extend their survival and put them on, on that. But the problem is that what do we do for the 90% left? What options are we gonna give them? What's gonna be that roadmap? What after do we really should put them, how do we choose from one chemotherapy to the other, right? And, and going beyond chemotherapy, what are we going to put them in terms of targeted therapy if they don't have the actionable mutations? So what we found in, from the work that I did at MSK in, in kind of it being the pioneer work behind everything that we're now doing at Yale is we found that if patients have this mutation, these, these group of mutations in a gene called P53, it's one of the most mutated genes across all cancers, but about 60% of patients with pancreatic cancer will have this mutation. And what we know is that if they carry that mutation, they have a very active RNA splicing uh, changes in, in their tumor cells. And we know that if these tumor cells, if we treat them with um, anti-splicing therapies, first, a, a small molecule inhibitor, that targets the splicing machinery, at least in animal models, we've seen that we can triple their survival if we treat with these with these compounds. Yes, I know you're you're you know you're eye-opening and, and it is true. I mean, when can we say triple survival in pancreatic cancer, right? But keep in mind, this is still in mice, right? This is this is just for clinical data. Uh, but we are working with the company that produces the small molecule inhibitor to hopefully open a clinical trial in collaboration between Dartmouth and um, Dartmouth College and Yale University. Uh, so we can start with the sequencing data that comes back. If they have these mutations, these particular mutations in P53, we can potentially put the, put the patients on gemabraxane plus the splicing inhibitor and see how they do. So we are really excited to open this phase one clinical trial and see if we can open the possibilities of targeted therapies for pancreatic patients that potentially will be able to, uh, to open an opportunity for 40% of the patients now. So we will be jumping from 10% of targeted therapy 
to now 40% more. So 50 potentially of, of the 50% of the population with pancreatic cancer can potentially have a targeted therapy coming to their, you know, to their treatment. Now, the uh, we are now working with with two of my postdoctoral fellows, actually three of my postdoctoral fellows. Each one of them, what we have seen is that there are other mutations that if that if they appear, they also confer some sensitivity to anti-splicing therapies. So and these mutations combined, they represent about another 16% of patients. So I guess what I'm saying is we're trying to bring novel therapies, targeted therapies for personalized medicine to patients that carry particular mutations. And we're just bringing new therapies because we think that these tumors work very differently to any other tumors uh, you know, that are out there. Um, so we are, we are excited. We are just starting the research. So for each one of these mutations, we not only test the different compounds, but we also need to understand how are these compounds working? How are they changing the biology of the cells? Because it's the only way to understand if let's say they develop a resistant resistance, how are we going to tackle that resistance? Because we need to understand very well how these anti-splicing therapies work and why they're so important why RNA splicing is so important for these cancer cells. So on the previous podcast that I listened to, you talked about flip and shoot. Is this what the the flip and the shoot are? No. So let's talk about flip and shot. Flip so, and shot. Um, yeah. Yes, not a problem. So I was just talking about small molecule inhibitors that target the splicing machinery and they work well and we're pushing them for targeted therapies. The problem, however, is that the small molecule inhibitors, they also target normal cells. And so potentially there could be some slight side effects associated to this therapy. So we started thinking, what could be the other ways that we can develop anti-splicing therapies that are specific only for the tumor cells that would only tackle the tumor cells? And so what we're doing is, I was mentioning that cancer cells do some switching of the transcripts that they use. So they will sometimes have defects in these, in these mRNAs that they are producing. So we generated a therapy that we call SHOT, S-H-O-T, or splicing hit oligotherapy. And basically what it is, this is a biological therapy where we are actually forcing the cells to correct those splicing defects. Those defects that made them so resistant to therapies, we're now correcting them to make the cells now more vulnerable and sensitive to uh, specific therapies. We, um, we developed SHOT and we're now hoping to expand it. We're trying to produce more data in, in mice and uh, in, in these preclinical models that hopefully we can expand it. One of the problems that I was facing when I was at MSK was Shot worked really nice when we injected directly into the tumor of mice. But we know that in real life and for, for, for bringing this therapy to patients, we cannot put a patient in the bed and inject the therapy directly into the tumor. That it, there's no way that we can advance a therapy that way. So we needed a way to deliver shot directly into the tumor cells, potentially by an intravenous injection. And so I was very glad to find that um, a couple of scientists here, Don Engel Engelberg and, and Peter Glazer had developed this technology called FLIP. And basically what FLIP is, it's a carrier of these potential um, biological therapies uh, that can go all the way into the tumor. And once in the tumor, it becomes almost like a biological syringe. Um, and it injects directly this therapy into the cancer cells. And the reason why it's so specific for the tumor is because it, when it reaches the tumor, the tumors are highly acidic. So their pH is, is very low. And when FLIP gets to the tumor, it forms this uh, coil very nice. Um, and it, it pretty much forms this coil almost like a syringe injecting into the tumor cells. And so it's able to deliver this therapy uh, specifically only into the tumor cells. So you're maximizing the dose that gets into the tumor by giving an IV 
So and so none other cells are going to take it. Yeah. So we think it's really fascinating and we are very excited. Again, as I said, it's still going to take a little bit to get it up and running, uh, but we're highly committed and we're just starting. And, and, and I think it's promising. Flip itself is already in phase one clinical trial to deliver other um, imaging agents and other compounds. So we feel that uh, it would be very, if it works in mice, it will be very easy to kind of ramp it up and start testing it in pancreatic cancer patients. So awesome. We just shared two really exciting things happening in your lab at Yale for pancreatic cancer. I'm getting excited. Um, this is just awesome. It's great to hear. And given the year we've had, this is like amazing news, Luisa, you know, with all the, you know, everything that's happened just globally, but, you know, as we were saying, you know, it's just a tough year for everyone. And especially for this disease, like pancreatic cancer didn't stop, like, you know, and it's just awesome to hear that, you know, these great things are still happening even through the pandemic and also through a year, as you said, like everything was focused on COVID, which, you know, rightly so. I mean, it, it's a it's a thing that impacts us all. But, you know, for us here in the pancreatic cancer space, it's kind of a, a little worrisome saying like, hey, we're still here. We're still fighting. You know, we need help. We need mm -hmm. money um, to do these things. And to hear that these great things are happening is just awesome. I've got a question um, that I had before, but, you know, now hearing you, you talk and, and just, you know, for our audience here. You know, I, and the term personalized medicine, I know, has been around for the last couple of years. And hearing you speak about, you know, the, the sequencing and the splicing and understanding, you know, everyone's tumor type, would you consider this a, a kind of a, an off, not an offshoot, but in that path or in the realm of personalized medicine for patients? That was my first question. Well, I think that what we've learned with pancreatic cancer is we need to look at these tumors very deeply and differently. And so we are right now elaborating our therapies based on certain mutations that the patients have. So we would not need to implement a new technology as the patients are coming in, because as I mentioned previously, it's now standard of care that they need to get their tumor sequence. I do think, however, that our research, what we're going to learn is that mutations are not enough. And potentially, we not only need to sequence the DNA of the tumors, but also the RNA of the tumors to uh, get a better glimpse. So I, I, there is this analogy very nicely that the genes are almost like the players of different instruments in an orchestra, right? But they're quiet until a director comes and guides them in when, you know, when the violin needs to be turned on and when the cello needs to be on and when it needs to be off. And so understanding the music, that it's the song that is being played by the genes is so important. It's not enough with knowing who, you know, how many violin, you know, players you have is what song are they playing? So I think that's what the RNA is going to start telling us because you can switch, right? You can play, be playing, you can be turning on some genes, then later turning them off, depending on the therapy that you're challenging these tumors with. So I think we're definitely going to start changing the way that we look into tumors. I think the RNA sequencing is not too much of a long uh, project. I think we're already starting to understand the importance of it. It's just that it's still not standard of care. And I think we need to get there. I just wanted to, you know, as you were making the parallel between COVID and cancer research, I was just saying, I worked on mRNA biology and how this is so important for tumors, but I also felt really good. We know when we started seeing that the vaccines for COVID are also mRNA based vaccines. So it's the same, we're all working about the same technology, the same understanding of how the cells work at the RNA level, that it seems to be so potent and that is teaching us faster ways of think, getting things done. And it's also teaching us uh, ways that we can tackle diseases by means that are potentially more potent than what we used to just think by just targeting mutations. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear you say all this, and and I you know I go back to something I heard. I think you know this is as as slow as things will be from this point forward, right? Things will just move that much faster in terms of technology and science. And it's fascinating, you know, you said like, you know, we've already figured out the DNA sequence and and it probably won't take that long to figure out the RNA sequence because we've already figured out the DNA sequence and the science is there. So it's not like we're recreating the wheel. And this goes to the point of this roadmap, you know, to bring this kind of full circle here, you know, we, we've, we've, we're, we're finding these pieces and I love that analogy of the orchestra, right? So it's like, we have the pieces of the orchestra. Now we're getting the other pieces and then getting the right pieces to play. It's just, this is really awesome. What you just said though, in the last, and I'm looking at the timer here, we've been talking for 50 minutes. And I know I'm not going to put you on the spot to to say this, but I'm going to say it as an an awareness uh, partner and an advocate here. What Louisa just said over the last 50 minutes is the reason why, if you're a family and you're listening, and you have someone who's been diagnosed recently, or if it happens somewhere down the line that you get diagnosed, go to a major center that does this day in, day out, and has the expertise. Because you are not gonna get what Louisa just explained at a regional community hospital. And I'm not putting anyone down, I'm not knocking anyone. There's great clinicians, you can get great care at those facilities, but you really need to take this disease serious. I speak from my own family experience. If there's one thing people ask this question all the time, what I would do differently is I would have dragged my dad and my mom to the best center closest to our house that had expertise in pancreatic cancer. And now there's so many great centers throughout the country. So, and there's also so many groups that can help you get there, whether they get you in the door, whether they provide transportation or not provide, no one's going to send you a driver. They'll, they'll assist you there. There's so many groups that have resources and programs to help patients get to these major centers, but please people, you have to get to a major center to get this kind of expertise. Cause you're just not getting it. And I think that's part of the challenge, right? Louisa, and, and not to put you on the spot is what you guys are doing there. you isn't full scale yet. You know, and, and, and the goal is hopefully eventually this does become full scale, just like, you know, genetic sequencing is full scale now, right? Like anyone in the United States mm-hmm. that gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, they have to do full genetic sequencing of the tumor. Correct. That just occurred mm-hmm. in the last two years though, right? Like, I mean, there was people, yes. you know, three years ago, four years ago that, you know, went to regional centers and they didn't get genetic sequencing. Now, if they went to MSK four years ago, or if they went to Yale or Columbia, yeah, that, that probably they, they did get genetic se- sequencing, but not if they went to a regional center or a community center hospital. Now it's mandated. So that's really really where our hope is that we bring this full circle to everyone. But for the time being, you know, go out and seek a, a you know a center of excellence that does this day in, day out, and people that do this all day, every day. So I've got we got two things left for you. My last question for you, and this is a hard one. There's no right or wrong. I'm prefacing that's a hard one. It's a loaded mm-hmm. question is what is your definition in your experience personally and professionally of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? And there's no right or wrong, it's it's your answer. Hmm. I can define it as Oh god, this is Thank you for that question. It actually makes me think of, of you know, what I, what I was describing on the scope, what I was describing on how the, the work that I do. I just think it's probably the most plastic tumor that I've ever dealt with. But we're gonna we're gonna figure figure it out. I I am positive, and in plastic meaning it, it wears different hats. It changes different mask and makeup, but but we're gonna find how it does it and why is it doing it that way or the other way, depending on what treatment uh, chemotherapy you're giving them, and, um, and and we're and we are going to 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 tackle those mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I love it. 
I love it. So last thing here, we've shared some great information and I'm sure there's plenty of people that are gonna wanna learn more and hear more about what you're doing there at Yale and how to learn more and maybe possibly get involved. Where is the best place for people to connect and learn more if we can share that with our audience? Sure, definitely. So I think in general, to learn more of what we're doing as a, as a group in, in at Yale Cancer Center, you definitely can look into our, into our website. You can contact our community outreach uh, center to learn more if you get diagnosed and, and maybe you can get, and you know, you will get connected to, to our specialists. Um, to learn more about what I am doing with my team in, in our lab, um, you can find us in, our, in the website. You can Google, you know, Escobar Hoyos Lab Yale, and you can find a little bit more information on what in particular we do um, and who are the team. I've been talking about, you know, what we're doing, but really I am just the leader, but the, the people that I have under my team are, are the the, the, the real, you know, the, the scientists doing all the work behind it. And, and I'm just really fortunate to be working with such a creative, hardworking team. Um, yeah, so, and in general, you know, you should be able to consult websites that are from different foundations, from Project Purple, from, you know, Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, from La Scarden Foundation, all of these foundations that are, are in, 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 that are just devoted to pancreatic cancer care and research. So, you know, you will have great advice there. So having information is the most important. And I, and I can agree with, you know, you know, try to find places where are working with the highest um, level of technology and pioneering the, the research and the treatment of this disease because it, it's a it's a tough one, but we, we can still make a difference. Awesome. And if you Google Escobar Hoyos Lab, it comes right up and you've got all your staff yes. there. You, you got the work. Yes, so definitely. that's a great resource. So you can learn you. from all the team members. What do they do? What are their hobbies? How did they got to the lab? We also have a Twitter, um, Escobar Lab, yep. Escobar underscore lab. And, uh, and there we post, you know, what's happening with, you know, with our team members, our research, any news that we learn or any scientific paper that comes out that, it, you know, it's groundbreaking in the way that it describes pancreatic cancer and how it works. So may definitely follow us and, and, and stay tuned. Well, Louisa, thank you for all the work you're doing. I was going to ask you uh, a question because you're in, you know, if you haven't well, because you came into Kinetic during the pandemic, this is going to be a little bit lightheartedness. You know, New Haven is known to be the pizza capital of the United States. So I was going <laughs> yes. to ask you your personal preference, but, you know, given the pandemic, you probably haven't had an opportunity to go out and try them all. So maybe we'll have to follow up with you in a year and just see, make sure if you tried Sally's, Pepe's, Modern. Uh, there's so many great pizza places in New Haven. Uh, there so many, are. So we'll, we'll yes, have to save that question. Actually for sure. Um, I just started, I tried already a couple, so I still need to look to other ones to make a fair comparison, but yes, we'll come back to that question. It's not, it's not, you don't have the variety of New York city, but we still have really good quality. Pizza. Yeah. But good quality. Yeah. Good yeah. quality. Good quality. Thank you, Louisa, for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for all you do. We look forward to following all the great work you're doing. It's inspiring for me to have the opportunity to share your journey, all the great works you're doing. And it's just really awesome. I mean, again, given the year we've had to hear about these advances, and we're going to continue pushing and continue helping to give you guys tools to do your job and to continue to build on the success. So thank you. Thank you to all the community. I know that there are out there, you know, families, advocates, volunteers, CEOs, pioneers, you know, everyone. We're just trying to make a difference. And I just want to take this moment to thank everyone because the funding that we get is because of you. It's because you have raised awareness. It's because you you email Congress, you went to Washington, you're asking for more money for this disease. And uh, 
we, as long as we keep the funding going, the research will advance. And that's the only way that we can change the course of this disease. So thank you for everyone and for all your effort. Every effort matters. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you once again. As we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel feel free to share this podcast and please be safe. And until next time, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Mm -hmm.